my dad was tracked down to the local pub where he borrowed a mate's van and headed towards the playground. He was enraged to discover that the dog was still off the leash. Dad drove through the gates, ran over the dog, and reversed over it to ensure that it was dead. Holy crap. That's Joey Bart. I didn't dad. see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> and we're live. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 21 of History's Greatest Idiots, the podcast in which we look back on all the mistakes from human history and try and give you lessons so that you can learn from all of these terrible cock-ups and never repeat <laughs> the mistakes again. But who are we kidding? We're humans. Mistakes are fun. And we really like learning about them as well, which is the best part. Joining me as ever is my awesome, amazing co-host, Derek. Derek, how are you doing, my man? I'm, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. You know, <laughs> I've been busy. I've had a busy-ass week. We've, um, I had a business trip down in the south of England, and when I got back, my house had new windows, which was really cool. cool. We now have, <laughs> yeah, triple glazed windows, so it's much cooler in the, uh, much warmer in the winter and cooler in the summer and all of that, but also um, it's it's quieter, because we live by a, um, a kind of a 20 mile an hour road that nobody does 20 miles an hour along, so <laughs> you have people doing like 40 miles an hour, at one o'clock in the morning, and it's just, it was getting to the point where we weren't sleeping properly, so we've had new windows in as a part of the renovations that we're doing, and it's already making a huge difference. It feels warmer, it's quieter, and I'm just I'm just so happy. They look so good, I'm so pleased. I never it's thought I'd be this thrilled. in life, you know? It is. <laughs> I never thought I'd be this thrilled about windows. Welcome you know, to 40. <laughs> Welcome to my 40s, yeah. Windows yeah. excite me now. It's it's kind of amazing. So um, we've had um, kind of an interesting uh, week at both sides of the Atlantic. Um, you guys are settling in. Everything's okay over there, I assume? For now. For now. <laughs> that's, that's yeah. That, going into Christmas, I think people, uh, it kind of starts to get a bit crazy. You guys oh, yeah. have a lot happening around about that time of year. Like, you've got Thanksgiving, and then you've got, like, Black Friday, and yeah, uh, yes. the Christmas period as well. And, like, I mean, we don't have Thanksgiving, and, we, I mean, we do have Black Friday, but I don't think it's going to be so intense this year, obviously, with the whole COVID thing still lingering around. But also, like, Christmas... Um, I feel like, again, it's going to be somewhat subdued. But, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how that pans out for you guys. Have you got any plans for the Christmas period at all? I, I really don't. Um, I know <laughs> we're we're kind of pulling back um, right. Thanksgiving this year. Okay. Um, mm. And I, I'm not sure. We might do something with her, her family. Uh, sure, yeah. The, the smaller one for Christmas. It's, right. I don't know. It's still not time, I don't think. To, to be in big groups, and, and you guys just have a spike going on over there, don't you? In somewhere yeah, in well, I don't think we've ever really been uh, been down from any specific period of COVID. You know, we, we've always had lingering background cases, but yeah, we've there's a spike here, a spike in the Netherlands as well, which is going to a partial lockdown, so yeah. People Speaking are still of a the bit Netherlands, uh, yes. hi to the new Netherlands listeners. Yeah, and, uh, shout like, out. Sorry, go on. Well, shout out to, uh, I don't even know how to pronounce the name of the podcast, but they do um, Murder Mysteries. They they Ooh. covered one of my Halloween stories and gave a shout out for the history show here, and I think maybe some people might enjoy it. 
That's so cool. Oh, that's amazing. Well, I, I noticed that the Netherlands had become our second biggest market in terms of uh, the countries that listen to us. The United States are running away with the first place, but it had always <laughs> been the UK in second place. But now it's Holland. Oh, sorry, the Netherlands, because Holland's like a part of the Netherlands. Um, so welcome to all our, our Dutch listeners out there. You guys are awesome. Thank you for uh, publish, uh, publicizing Derek's amazing work and um, and talking about the podcast. And if you find us through that podcast, that's that's really great, because I know that the majority of Dutch people speak at least four languages. So they are super smart super tall super happy partially <laughs> high human beings hey so my that's, kind of people <laughs> yeah they're laid back they have good art they have good cheese and they're all high so great we love you dutch people you're amazing um so thank you so much for that that's really cool your your writing is is kind of reaching into different areas i i love hearing about that it's been a real success for you I'm poking my fingers into all kinds of things right now, just in the hopes that so somebody's cool. gonna like something we do here, or I do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, the thing is, I'm I've poked my fingers into being in alternate history horror, analog horror videos where I'm James Dean and J.D. Rockefeller and Richard Nixon. But um, yeah, it's kind of interesting when you branch out from the thing that you put the majority of your focus on, when you find success there, it's always like you, you feel like, oh man, I'm a renaissance man. I'm one of those <laughs> right? people now. I can do everything. That's what so, I'm screaming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, I'm really pleased for you, man, because you put in so much hard work and effort and um, it's, it's good to see it rewarded in, in ways like that. So congratulations. It's yeah, I'm I'm excited and I'm liking the the numbers are growing. I'm feeling yeah. like we're doing good stuff and I keep we learning are. new shit. <laughs> we do. We're we're still learning in our forties, isn't it? Incredible. I think um, that's important. Yeah, I think it is important to carry, continuously learn. But um, I I'm a little worried that I'll learn so much eventually I'll forget how to drive or or speak English or something like that because my brain has a capacity and I feel like it's pretty much there already despite the limited amount of knowledge i have so yeah. <laughs> um D derek um can you tell us about your idiot this week please if you don't mind well, well like we were talking about the holidays are coming up and yes we're like a week or so away from thanksgiving here in the states and i figured maybe i could find somebody to tie into the holiday i like staying relevant and sure. whatnot so yeah, works. in the thanksgiving holiday the Thanksgiving in spirit is a, is an awesome holiday that, you know, we gather as family and we're thankful and we share with one another, but there's mm -hmm. a dark side of it that, you know, we really don't get into. Yes, absolutely um, there is. Growing up, I was taught about the beautiful idea of the European settlers having a rough time and the Indians coming to their rescue or Native Americans, uh, yes. as I guess I should say it, um, and... That's kind of where the tradition I was taught came from. But what right. they didn't bother to mention early on in my, my growing up was that nearly uh, 100 million Native Americans died through slaughter and disease mm. and stuff directly yeah. in, as a result of the European settlers from 1461 to 1890 and then one skirmish in the 19, uh, 1918, I think. Uh, but I guess... The 
last real battle was Battle of Wounded Knee or the Wounded Knee Massacre, depending on which side of the story you're telling, I guess. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> for, let's see, <laughs> for those of you who haven't rage quit on us, which all three of you that are still staying here, I kind of <laughs> went a little cancel culture but this one okay. is, it's a good story for Native Americans in a, a way, sad, okay. I guess. Mm. Um, the gentleman I have for you today was born on December 5th, 1839 okay. in New Rumley, Ohio. Okay, right, yeah. The Ohio he, Valley area, I guess. That's sure. Yes. Maybe? Yep, he's maybe? the son of a farmer and a blacksmith that was okay. on his second wife. So he had two younger brothers, two younger sisters, and three older half-siblings. Wow, it's a big family. Right. His father was yeah. an outspoken Jacksonian Democrat. And oh. that he taught to his children, along with to be real tough um, from an early age, which might have had something to do with who he became later in life. Okay. Um, now, the half-siblings come into play here because even though he was born in Ohio, he spent a great deal of his life living with his half-sister and brother-in-law in Monroe, Michigan, where he oh. was able to actually attend school uh, from a young age. Wow. Okay. Um, <clears throat> following his early education, he moved back to Ohio, where he graduated from McNeely Normal School in Hopedale, Ohio, in 1856, and okay. he became a teacher. So he's starting off yeah. life right, pretty normal, going to Absolutely. school, getting educated, giving yeah. back. Got a um, good, good job for the time, if you're well-educated and you can provide an education to other people uh, at that time in that part of the world, then... Great. Immediately you've gone up in my estimation, so that's that's good. But he wasn't a teacher for very long because on July 1st, 1857, he gave up his teaching career and entered the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Oh, wow. West Point, a very prestigious military academy, blimey. That's the it, military academy, really. It is. But um, So it should be mentioned that as a kid, him and his brothers liked to play some epic pranks. And from a young age, he acquired a lifelong love of being a practical joker that oh, he cool. carried on with him to West Point. Okay. Um, so it's like a 19th century jackass type situation. Exactly, yeah. He's Johnny Knoxville <laughs> of West Point in the, um, in the 1860s or 50s, okay. 60s, sure. somewhere in there. Damn it. Yeah. Um, it's said that he spent more time actually pulling pranks than he did studying. And it, it could be true because during his time at West Point, he managed to accrue an astonishing 726 demerits, uh, <laughs> which is one of the worst conduct rest, uh, records in the history of the academy. So that's terrible. He, he's. Um, like, like one every three days or something crazy like that. It has to be. And uh, <laughs> you, you might think that something like that would get him kicked out, but mm. it wasn't the case. Although he did get close, he was court-martialed well uh, there because he was the officer on guard and failed to stop two cadets from fighting, but he got off with some easy slap on the wrist. Okay, well, I, yeah, I like... I mean, obviously, court-martialing is a very serious thing in the military, and, you know, that's the kind of thing that lands you in prison for, for a, a fair old while if it, if it goes wrong. But, I, like, I, failing to break up a fight, it's like, well, that probably would have been a reasonably common thing in the military at the time because they were trying to make people tough, and, right. you know, so maybe there would have been, like, the whole trial-by-combat thought going on there. So I can kind of, like, I, I'll give him a somewhat of a pass. 
for that. Right. But yeah, that's getting close to court-martialing is not a great start to your, your military career, really. With all those demerits and then the court-martial, you'd kind of think that when he did graduate, he'd get like some sort of nothing post. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh yeah! Did I mention he graduated the absolute last of his class? Because <laughs> that's usually a point of uh, pride for a lot of people. Like I graduated magna cum laude or, or top of my class. At blah, blah blah. He was dead last. Dead last, and he <laughs> he said that there's the two types of people that come out of there. It's the head and the boot, and he's fine with being the boot. Okay, well, so, good for him. He took it. Took it on the yeah. chin. Yeah. Um. With the outbreak of the American Civil War in 1861, mm. they accelerated it, and he graduated June 24th, 1861, and right. was commissioned as a second lieutenant assigned to the 2nd U.S. Cavalry, tasked with uh, drilling the volunteers and drumming up soldiers in Washington, D.C. Okay, yeah. He actually so, saw yeah. his first action at the battle, uh, the first battle of Bull Run, and okay. it was May of 1862 that he started to make a name for himself while in pursuit of Confederate General Joseph Johnson. Mm -hmm. um, he had overheard the general he was attached to, General George McClellan, mutter something about wanting to know how deep the river was that he had to cross. <laughs> so he immediately responded and hauled ass off on his horse to the middle of the river where he <laughs> turned around and exclaimed, McClellan, this is how deep it is, General. <laughs> So he's fucking batshit crazy, right? <laughs> like, hey, hey, look, I'm still alive. You'll be fine. <laughs> it earned him clout, though. So I bet it did. He started yeah. getting uh, a reputation as kind of a, a badass, and it allowed for him to lead an attack with four companies that led to the, the capture of the first Confederate battle flag, as well oh, wow. as around 50 Confederate soldiers. That's, that's so, a big trap, because the North, early on in the war... The North did not have a lot of success, you know. No, um, if I'm, I'm but, right in understanding that, but yeah, yeah, it was it was rough going early mm. on, and he dove right the hell in and made some some big waves with his okay. big old brass balls. Um, <laughs> although I kind of think maybe he got lucky taking super big risks and and chances, but it paid off for him because he was promoted to to captain, right, 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 right away, and. In his role as the aide-de-camp to McClellan, uh, he began a lifelong pursuit of publicity as well, mm. which worked out for him because on June 22nd, 1863, he was promoted to Major General of the U.S. Volunteers wow. uh, at the age of 23 years old, which is... Shit, a that's, that's a fast rise. Big-ass yeah. <laughs> accomplishment. <laughs> um as a general, he kind of had a great deal of leeway in a lot of areas, and one of those areas he chose to exercise his leeway was in his uniform, okay. where he created some non-standard additions to, like, velveteen jackets with big gaudy gold <laughs> braiding, uh, big floppy... He's basically dressing as Napoleon, or... Like... Oh, yeah, he's dressing up. He had a big floppy sombrero sometimes, and a red oh, tie wow. to stand out, what? and... That was actually, um, he was criticized as being gaudy and vain, yeah. but okay. one historian actually said that the showy uniform for him was uh, one of a command presence on the battlefield, so he wanted to be readily distinguishable at first glance from all okay. of his soldiers, and he intended to lead from the front, so mm -hmm. he wanted them to be able to see him, see what he was doing, 
and take yeah. inspiration, I guess. I that now that makes a lot of sense because throughout history, particularly in the Middle Ages, when everyone was wearing fucking masses of armor and stuff like real sheet metal, um, a lot of battles are very kind of chaotic because despite what films would have you believe, it's almost very dif- it's very difficult to differentiate between the enemy and the ally when you're covered in mud and blood and all sorts of other crap. Yes. You know, yep. so to have a guy leading from the front with a giant red tie and a big fucking sombrero, <laughs> you'd be like, that's us. We can go that way. <laughs> right. It might be completely useless to him in terms of, like, balance or his ability to see properly, but, yeah, the guy well, in the sombrero, he's on our side. Let's follow him. You he know? was fair-skinned, so it did help prevent sunburn as well. There you go. Okay. So there was a function, okay. I guess. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, regardless of his reasons for being so showy, uh, he he did. Uh, he is said to have more photographs taken of him than any other officer in the Army ever. Wow. And he was known to scent his long golden locks with cinnamon oils. Oh. Which... You know, I think can Quite tell you dandy. that uh, mm. it's a little—it's a little bit about vanity at that point. Yeah, Ma- that, at that point you're like, okay, you can't argue the practicality of putting gum in your hair. You know, it's like, <laughs> like fuck off, dude. Like this is war. You're just lucky to not have someone else's guts in your hair at this point. So yeah, yeah, right, yeah, that's bad. So he's this young hotshot officer on the fast sure. track, smelling nice, looking good, <laughs> and he's making this name for himself in the Civil War. Um. Okay. He he becomes known as the Boy General, okay. and he nice. distinguishes himself on numerous occasions, including the Battle of Gettysburg, Battle oh, of man. Yellow Tavern, the Third Battle of Winchester, and all of that led to a rise to division command and wow. a promotion to Major General before he turned 25. Jeez, this so, guy, he's clearly doing something right or or an amazing kiss ass because he's had a meteoric rise from last in his class to major general that's kind he's, of amazing he's both of those things he is politicking yeah. he does yeah. the things to get himself noticed associates himself with the right people sure. but he's also pretty tactically brilliant okay Good. if you don't think maybe he's just hardcore and lucky sure Right, yeah. Uh, um, either way, close to the end of the war, it was his relentless pursuit of General Robert E. Lee uh, wow. that hastened the surrender when he cut him off from retreat, causing the the uh, Apotomax, I, can't, I don't even know how to say it, courthouse. Apotomax? <laughs> yeah, on yeah. April 9th, 1865, which ended yeah. the war. That's right, yeah, the, uh, the farmhouse at Appomattox where... Uh, that one. They met, and uh, yes, and uh, see the thing is, I've I've studied a lot about the Civil War. It's it's totally fascinating. The American Civil War, despite the fact that six hundred and sixty thousand people died, is is kind of amazing for a number of different things. And like the fact that the the war ended at a, a farmhouse in Appomattox and in sixty five, and yeah, there are so many kind of cool things. Robert E. Lee, uh, you know, kind of the really interesting stuff, and the fact that. Um, What's the military graveyard that they um, they have now? Arlington. Arlington, yeah, that was like mm-hmm. a Confederate general's back garden. So they're like, "Fuck you, we're putting all of the dead <laughs> in your back garden." So yeah, that's um, it, it's kind of amazing. But yeah, the Appomattox thing—that's—I didn't know he played a role in that. I was unaware of that moment. So he was incredibly pivotal. Well, 
fun fun fact on that because of his service and the role that he played uh one of the generals <clears throat> later on purchased a table that was used during the signing of the treaty and wow. gave it to his wife uh as okay. a, a tribute for his service okay so wow that's, that's pretty cool he actually had this <coughs> signing <coughs> table for yeah. the the end of that at his house so that, that is really cool uh i'm, um, I'm really impressed yeah on February 1st, 1866, he was mustered out of the U.S. Volunteer Service and took an extended leave of absence. Following the death of his father-in-law in May of 1866, he returned to Monroe, Michigan, and actually considered running for Congress, um, where right. he started getting into some more politicking and sought the favor of President Andrew Johnson, uh, angling for better promotion when he did come <clears throat> back from his leave. Yeah, um, but that kind of got him mixed up in some other racist things where he spoke out against black suffrage Ugh. and said not nice things there. Mm. Uh, on July 28th, 1866, he was appointed uh, lieutenant colonel of the newly created 7th Cavalry Regiment and right. headquartered at Fort Riley in Kansas, okay. where he served his frontier duty. And that's where his involvement in the war with Native Americans also known as his command during the American Indian Wars, mm. um, began. And it didn't really start well for him no. at all. That whole uh, war is a fucking mess. Oh, it's one yeah. of like the le most under-taught, under-privileged... Yeah. Uh, it's, it's sad that people don't know about how shitty it was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but he and his 7th Cavalry reported to Western Kansas to take part in Major General Winfield Hancock's expedition to basically scare off the Plains Indians with great military strength. Yeah. Uh, except for he wasn't able to really adapt successfully to that style of warfare, and he started okay. acting erratically and freaking mm -hmm. out when things weren't going his way, ordering deserters to be shot without trial. Jesus. And... Instead of waiting for supplies to be loaded on at Fort Wallace, he took off and went home to see his wife. Um, following those events, he was court-martialed again at yeah. Fort uh, Leavenworth, okay. and it didn't go as well for him this time. He was found guilty of misconduct in 1867 and suspended from uh, rank and pay for one year. Wow. Shit. That's... Still not that bad, though. I mean, yeah, actually, compared to what he could have had, that's that's quite light, but, like, no pay for a year. that's That's got to hit hard, hasn't it? Yeah. Despite his but many it, triumphs. It mm. very well could have been the end of his career, but it wasn't because the army was really sucking ass at doing <laughs> any sort of control on what they deemed uh, the hostile Plains Indians. Right. And they kind of decided that they needed somebody with aggressive instincts and a tactical mind to come in mm -hmm. here and just get the damn job done. So he returned to duty in September of uh, 1868. Okay. I feel like I mistyped that. But okay. he rejoined the 7th Cavalry in southwest, uh, southwestern Kansas. Mm -hmm. And in November, uh, his command surprised and destroyed the southern Cheyenne chief Black Kettle's village on okay. the Washashati River. Right. It, it should be mentioned that they had Black Kettle and his people had already been the target of a, a controversial surprise attack early on, so he kind of knew what he was getting into because right. they had already 
kind of gotten massacred in 1864 at Sand Creek. Oh, my God. So it's not really sure. Like, it's not really certain, like, how big this victory was because yeah. it's thought that most of the people that uh, him and his 7th Cav did kill were women and children rather than oh. warriors. So oh, that's so gross. That said, <clears throat> it was the Army's first major victory over the <clears throat> Southern Plains Indians. Right. As okay. they put it. Uh, the civil, uh, Following the Civil War, it was their biggest victory uh, yeah. as a cavalry unit. That's crazy. So yeah. that helped establish his reputation as America's top Indian fighter, which I'm not <laughs> sure how great of a title that would be considered today. No, but, no. Uh, it should be mentioned that the victory helped force a large portion of the Southern Cheyenne onto U.S. assigned reservations. So, right. Dick, move, yeah, guy. yeah. Um, <laughs> he's um, uh, Holocauster in chief at this point, just like wiping out indigenous peoples, and he's become very good at it. So that's yeah. Perhaps maybe his father was a staunch Jacksonian, mm. and he gained a disdain for folks uh, yeah given that andrew native jackson was uh <clears throat> he was not fond of the native peoples and he wasn't fond of anyone really right let's be honest he was shooting them before he was president so yeah um that kind of makes sense that he would be heavily involved in that conflict if he was you know kind of tied to andrew jackson from a young age so right. that's mm. So after that massacre, in 1874, he goes up to investigate and secure um, the Black Hills for okay. after rumors of gold come out. Um, so it had been a region that was recognized as a, a sacred hunting ground during a Lakota Sioux Treaty with the U.S. government, yeah. but... This dude exaggerated some reports that sparked a gold rush, so the U.S. Oh, no. disregarded the treaty and directed the Sioux and other northern Cheyenne allies to move on to reservations by January 31st, 1876, Ugh. or else. What a dick. Uh, <laughs> yep. So, <laughs> many of the tribes, though, in that area lived in remote or scattered winter camps, and it made it right. difficult for them to even get the message that they were being ordered to evacuate to reservations. Jeez. And the midwinter conditions kind of made it impossible for some of them to uh, even comply at all, even if they wanted to, yeah. in the face of, you know, the winter threats and cold and women and children traveling and stuff. Yeah, of course. Um, so that kind of got them riled up, and they started joining up with this charismatic Sioux leader named Sitting Bull, who uh. advocated for the resistance of the U.S. expansion and inspired his people with, like, impressive religious visions. Right, yeah. Very the famous figure administ history at that point. Yeah, the, ad the administration right there labeled all of them hostiles and tasked the army with bringing them in. When an expedition was planned for the spring... And once again, it was time for our guy to jump to command. When the spring hunting season arrived, more of the Native Americans left reservations and headed out to join up with Sitting Bull, and right. his numbers continued to grow. And in the face of white threats and white aggression, they kind of were starting to have an enough's enough moment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you would at that point. Like, the massacres and the atrocities would have been piling up. So, yeah. And the they settled in along um, and made camp along the Little Bighorn River in southern Montana. Yeah. And by now, I'm sure 
everybody must have figured out uh, who I'm talking about and where it's headed. Yeah. Because today I'm presenting to you none other than George Arm- Armstrong Custer. Yep. And this last bit right here that I'm going to say is pretty much straight out of the Encyclopedia Britannica because they summarized it better than I think I could have. So here goes nothing at reading. <laughs> uh, on June 22nd, 1876, Custer and the 7th Cavalry set out to follow Sitting Bill's trail, uh, which led them to the Little Bighorn Valley. Custer was expecting to find and strike out the Sioux and the Cheyenne from the south and drive them back into a smaller blockading force uh, further upstream along the Little Bighorn River. Yeah. But the problem was, on the morning of June 25th, Custard's scouts located Sitting Bull's village, and while they were making their moves, he was spotted by some of the Native American scouts that were out hunting, and it forced him to make a decision. Wait for the backup, yeah. go on as planned, or do what he did, and, well, just drive yeah. headlong into battle. Yeah. Um, he split his... his contingency of like 400 men uh, or 800 men into yeah. three different groups sent in the first wave to attack from the south he was going to lead a charge or he had another person lead a charge from the north but the people that had charged from the south retreated and yeah. that's because they ran into over 2,000 Sioux warriors that were enough's enough defending women and children and yeah. fighting for their lives Yeah, and um, well everybody knows it, it didn't go well no, the, it did not. <laughs> the battle lasted nearly two hours, and the natives cut off uh, the 210 soldiers that followed Custer and yeah. killed everyone. Yeah, it was a complete demolition, as I remember, because as part of my degree, um, uh, one of my minors was American studies, and we studied this particular point in history quite heavily and uh, Custer's last stand and the myths that have been built up around it ever since then you know it's uh, oh yeah yeah <laughs> well he he was killed along with everybody else he was found um mutilated although mm. they covered that up for a while uh, yeah. mainly because the native americans at the time believed the mutilated bodies would be doomed to wander the earth forever so yeah little f you to him at the same time yeah we beat they, you they and would have known who it was as well like that was <laughs> that was revenge really, right wasn't it yeah so there you go, General George Armstrong Custer. How's that for tying it in with the season? I don't know. That's about as good as it gets. Um, <laughs> Custer's, yeah. Um, Custer's a kind of an amazing figure. I mean, there were so many kind of amazing people that came out of the American Civil War characters. You know, I mean, yeah. that kind of rose to prominence based on their ingenuity or their their kind of cunning or guile or, or genius or recklessness even you know and one of my favorites was was stonewall jackson who uh was super successful and also had a kind of a random i think like one of the things that made me think oh this guy's all right was like he uh, a horse was being whipped by one of his his men and he started whipping the guy and like looked after the horse and stuff and you know right. you hear all these stories custer um, as I remember, and I'm probably wrong in some aspects, but as far as I can remember, is is quite the prick to yes, the Native yep. Americans. Yeah, I think I I don't think I'm off base in saying that. Like even at the time, he was kind of a dick. 
Uh, he was vindictive about stuff, almost. Yeah, quite bitter, quite vindictive. The mythology that was presented around Custer's last stand, that he's you know, fight to the last man, being circled, in, encircled by native tribes and, and fighting off and all this. As I remember, the archaeological evidence proved that they there was like a very hastened retreat at some point, and they were trying to get, like, as they followed the trail of bullets, and it was in a very specific direction, so this idea of a heroic last stand may be slightly fabricated, but that's, like, kind of, that's contested by different historians, but Custer, it, it's, again, like, it's difficult to rate him, because he came from, you know, he didn't do well in his initial um, army education, as you pointed out, but he rose right. through the ranks so quickly, and was so successful in a war where heroes were being made and icons were being made, people who eventually became huge politicians, as, as you pointed out, and, and you know big figures in history. Um, Custer, because of what he did to the native tribes, like I would have scored him quite highly based on like the fact that he came from the bottom of his class to become a major general. If that had been the, the end of his career, then right. I would have been like, Oh, this guy's not too bad, you know. He, <clears throat> okay, you know, he's military ma- man, he's probably killed a lot of people, you know, there's that aspect. But the stuff he did in the Indian Wars... Um, <coughs> sorry. <clears throat> sorry. That's all right. Um, I, I have to score him quite highly because he was part of a time in history where genocide was just normal, you know? Yeah. Just do it sort of <laughs> attitude to wiping out native peoples. And that and I know people will argue, oh, it's revisionist. It's not revisionist. Hundreds of thousands, millions of people were killed and wiped out. And that's never yeah. okay, no matter how you spin it. So It's actually estimated uh, from the arrival of European settlers in 1461 to that last yeah. battle in 1890, it was like 160 million Jesus. Native Americans were uh, wiped off, or one-third of their total population prior to um, anybody showing up. That is insane. That is an astronomical number of yeah. people. So... For that alone, for him being something of a figurehead in the decimation of an entire indigenous population, I have to give him a 92. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Custer (laughs) is... I mean, he's gross. There's no two ways about it. That, That kind of mission, whether you're an army guy or not, like you've got to question some stuff at a certain point, you know? Well... And he was kind of a dick beforehand yeah, and a slacker and just was like, I'm going to do what I want to do and that's just how it's going to be. And yeah, exactly. That's why yeah. he was the bottom of his class. <laughs> yeah, he was, He was like you say, a prankster, but also a bit of a prick from the start. So <laughs> it, it's, it's kind of, it's so weird that sometimes you find people in history who have somehow risen to the top despite, you know, failing quite a lot. And this guy is a classic example of failing upwards. Um, yep. Although, you know, he did have successes in the Civil War. He did. He shouldn't have been able to get to that point because he was fucking up so often and nearly court-martialed. But it's kind of, it's so weird. And it's such a mixed thing. But anyway, just, just based on the 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 terrible things he did in the, the Indian Wars or the Native Wars, whatever they were called, um, he has to get a 92 because that's just horrible, the stuff he did. So, yeah. Uh- I'll take that and agree with that. Yeah. Um, also kind of part of, I guess, of culture at that time that was just sort of 
accepting that we're going to wipe out these people because we believe this and that's that's so gross but like he was a very major part of the fabric of that society so he has to score highly so general custer the man who died at little big horn and looked like some sort of his body looked like some sort of eldritch monstrosity after the the army were the native army were done with him uh, definitely gets the 92 because he is one of one of american history's not so great figures Despite him being venerated after his death, when you look back and on it, yeah, yeah, he I mean the way I was brought him. up, though he's a hero, and yeah. to learn later on in life, it's like, well, that's not exactly right. That's not very <laughs> heroic, actually. What he's done there—that's kind of villainous, to be honest. So yeah. yeah, but that's 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 the way culture depicts certain people. If you need to venerate them for different purposes, anyway, on to. From one person who started out as a hero uh, historically, but then people realised was actually quite the villain, to someone who's never been viewed as a hero in his field, all kind of by the general public, and rightly so for the most part. Now, I'm going to say now, this is going to be a long one, because there's a lot of stuff to cover. (laughs) A lot of the American audience and people uh, unfamiliar with the world of soccer... There's another soccer player, will not be familiar with this guy. But when you hear his story, you will kind of want to know more. Ironically, just as we started this podcast, because I've got all the platforms that we're broadcasting on open so that I can monitor how things are going, and I got a notification on History's Greatest Idiots that this person just put out a tweet, and I was like, oh shit, are they watching us? I hope not. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Let me... Sorry, go on. What are you going to say? Nothing. Um, hi, if they're watching. <laughs> yeah, it, if you're watching, Joey Barton, please don't kill us because oh, it, it, there's there's the possibility of that. Let me introduce you to Joey Barton and what happens when anger controls you. Yeah, Joseph Uh-oh. Anthony Barton was born on the second of September, nineteen eighty-two, in uh, Houghton. Uh, the Hutton area of Merseyside, which is very, very close to Liverpool. In fact, it might actually be in the city limits. Um, Liverpool is a city famous for three things. Football, the Beatles, and making its early money through the slave trade. So, yep. Yeah. That's, <laughs> Hell that's of a history. Liverpool. Hell of a history, yeah. You, you go to Liverpool and you're like, wow, these buildings are neoclassic gems. Like all this history and all, where the docks are incredible. Where's this money come from? The slave trade. That's where it came from. That and Bristol were like slave trade hubs at the time. And all of the beautiful architecture you see in cities like that, it's all tainted by that horrible, horrible moment in history. Um, by 1982, Liverpool and Merseyside in general were at the mercy of Margaret Thatcher's government and were essentially abandoned by the Tory government for the better part of two decades. They did not like the fact that (laughs) it was a working-class area that always voted for Labour and socialist candidates in general. So they were like, fuck it, we're going to let it go to rack and ruin, we're going to abandon the place, and sure enough, they did. And uh, Joey Barton, the oldest of four brothers, grew up in a tough town, in very tough times because they really were the 1980s in like 
Liverpool, pretty much anywhere that wasn't London, really, under Margaret Thatcher, was kind of left high and dry. You know, um, London and the home counties and that, they got all of the investment, all of the financial investment, all of the new buildings, all of the new stuff, and like places like Birmingham, Liverpool, Newcastle, the Northeast, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland were just fucking left to fend for themselves. Fuck off. Yeah, you guys can look after yourselves. We're going to look after our mates in the city. Um, yeah. And his parents, um, so growing up, his parents had a very rocky relationship and his upbringing was pretty chaotic, as you would expect from 1980s, the UK, when we were in an economic depression. Um, he was, uh, one time when he was out for a walk as a precocious three-year-old, he was bitten by an Alsatian. Uh, Barton, dis- I know, this is the, this is where things start for Joey Barton. He describes the incident in his biography like this. And he's actually very erudite, so um, big up to Joey Barton for actually being reasonably smart and very good at um, expressing himself later in his life, not necessarily for a very long time. But as time's gone on, he has kind of become a bit more calm and astute and and cohesive, so we we appreciate that, Joey. Uh, Barton describes the incident of being attacked by an Alsatian like this. I was I was playing in a concrete tunnel. No, I won't do that. Um, in the <laughs> playground at school, when an Alsatian appeared at the other end of the tunnel, I tried to be friendly, but it mauled me, biting my temple, nose, and face. My half sisters, Sharon and Joanne, who had left me for a few seconds, fought the dog off and helped my nan get me to hospital. The doctors were worried about me losing my right eye and they decided I needed minor plastic surgery to my nose at the same time. My dad was tracked down to the local pub where he borrowed a mate's van and headed towards the playground. He was enraged to discover that the dog was still off the leash. Dad drove through the gates, ran over the dog and reversed over it to ensure that it was dead. Holy crap. That's Joey Barton's I didn't dad. see that coming. <laughs> that That's is hardcore. Joey I, get, I get that you are upset that your child has been mauled by a dog, but go, while you're in a, a pub, I'm assuming he was drunk. Probably. Because he's in a pub. So deciding that you wanted to drink drive one of your friend's vans, crashing through the gates of a children's playground... More, running over a dog in a van in front of kids and then reversing over its corpse. That's nothing kind of traumatic an about reaction. that. Yeah. <laughs> it goes it goes on as well. Um his dad leapt out to confront the panic stricken owner of the dog, who lived nearby, and saved himself from a beating by apologizing profusely. Joey Barton's dad responded by saying, Fuck off back to your house. Okay. So, ha- apparently, had the guy not said that, Joey Barton would have beaten him. Joey Barton's dad would have beaten him to death. So, oh, uh, this, he goes on without wanting to critique his parenting skills. I think you should, Joey. Um, he was preparing <laughs> me for the world he thought I'd face. It was his world. It's a world where you need a skill set that isn't the same if you're going to Eton and becoming an MP. My dad didn't need a textbook on social conditioning to know his parental duty was to make sure no one fucked with me. Okay. So, that's Joey Barton at three. That's... <laughs> Jesus. Okay. <laughs> it's so fucking into... I mean, I get really upset when I, like, I'm watching a film or hearing a documentary and, like, animals get hurt. Like, there's something about films. You can kill a million people in a film... 
and I'll be sad. But the second I see like a dog get hurt or attacked, oh. that's it. I just don't want any more to do with it. You know? you know what? I've I I haven't had an often uh, time I've cried wildly in public, but uh, yeah. that Marley and Me movie oh, kicked my me, ass. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was so sad. Oh, God. And it was such a... I was watching, oh, this is such a nice, light film. It's fun. There's a fa- and then, like, the towards the end, you're like, oh, no, stop it. No, I'm turning this off. So <laughs> it gets really then, sad. Wham! Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's Joey Barton's youth. His dad uh, got upset that he was bitten by a dog, so he ran it over in a mate's van. Uh, that's the start yeah. to your life. Um, his parents separated when he was 14 years old, and consequently he lived with his father at his grandmother's house on a different estate. He was said uh, he has said that his grandmother's influence helped him to avoid getting caught up in the local recreational drug scene, which was big in Liverpool at the time. The, Liverpool's a major port, so you get a lot of stuff coming through there, like the major hard drug scenes. Um, oh, and, and being uh, poor and... Sorry? What, uh, I said, and then being the poor area town yeah. too. It it's it's to always wanna... flooded with drugs in, in that part yeah. at that time. It's really sad. Um, he attributes, attributes his work ethic to his father, who uh, worked very, very hard. His father, also called Joe, uh, worked as a roofer and played football semi-professionally for Northwich Victoria, who are quite a famous uh, like non-league team in this country. Barton enjoyed uh, physical education at his school, St. Thomas Beckett School, uh, which he represented in various sports and was a talented rugby league prospect and kind of starting to see why he was violent. It, it, there's there's two types of rugby. There's rugby union and rugby league. Rugby union is typically like it's the mainstream version of rugby, which still looks pretty rough, and it's usually played by people down south. And rugby league is a very northern version of rugby, and it's about 50% more violent. If you Is that the one it. where they play with like brass knuckles and spikes <laughs> in their shoes? It might as well because in rugby league you tackle high, so people go in like around their neck, they're clotheslining them, they're like throwing oh. them to the ground, and it's a very, very different game. It's very concussion rough league and tough. Yeah, there's like fights all the time. It's it's like Aussie rules football, only a little bit more organised. Um, <laughs> so all of that part of his life. Uh, oh, sorry, I, I missed a bit out there. So he enjoyed his physical education. He represented the school at various levels of sport. He was a talented rugby league prospect. And he left school with 10 GCSEs, which, you know, kind of for a kid who was in a rough part of area. So, like, the GCSEs are what you take um, when you turn 16 before you go into high school. Um, okay. So you do 10 GCSEs, and that's like English, math, science, geography, history. It's like every subject in school that you take. And, okay. And typically most people get 10 to 12 GCSEs, and I, you know that's, that's how it goes. And then you go on to your A-levels, where you study three subjects uh, that kind of sort of guide you towards university. So it's like it's so different. Here. I know, <laughs> and it's such a different system from the American one. So you you focus in on three subjects, and those are typically the ones that dictate where you're going, either in your career or into university, what you want to study next. Where you're focusing in on one, maybe two things, and that's where the rest of your life is focused. So it's it's well, hell, that makes way more sense it, than what we do. <laughs> in theory, it does. In practice, it's not always the case because the curriculum can sometimes be super limited. So uh, you might want to study like like me. I wanted to study media studies in, in university, and I did twice. I got two degrees in media studies, but there was nothing like that in school. So I had to stump for like art and design, 
and like it's kind of uh, tangentially related but it wasn't the same thing so it's like a whole thing it, it makes I sense but for him to have left school with 10 GCSEs with the kind of disruption that he'd been going through in the last few years that's actually really good and it shows that he does actually have a good level of intelligence and when he applies himself he's very good um you'll understand why um you, you know the surface level is starting to look good, but it starts to disintegrate very quickly from there. Uh, Barton pursued his dreams of becoming a professional footballer by joining Everton's youth system. So there's there's two major teams in um, Liverpool. There's Liverpool FC and there's Everton, which is like a specific part of Liverpool. And uh, okay. Liverpool, I mean, Everton fans wouldn't agree with this, but Liverpool are the bigger team. But Everton have always been quite successful as well. So like they do quite well. It's kind of like... Um, you know, any any major city in America you can think has two teams. There's always one that's super successful and another one that's not quite there, but, you know, they're, they're doing all right. You know, they're not crap by any stretch of the yeah. imagination. So, yeah. I gotcha. Um, so it's like the Jets and the, yeah, the, the Giants. Yankees. Sorry, no, wrong sport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jets yeah. and the oh, Knicks. the Yankees and the Mets. The Yankees and the yeah. Mets. There you go. Perfect example. So Liverpool, the Yankees, Everton, the, the, the Mets. So it's like, you know, they're not terrible, but they're not the Yankees, you know. So, <laughs> right. uh, Barton pursued his dream of becoming a prof- professional footballer with Everton's youth system, but played for Liverpool when he was 14. Uh, he didn't get through the youth setup at Liverpool. He had a few trials at Nottingham Forest, who were like slightly further down the uh, the pyramid of successful teams, but was rejected when it was decided he was too small to play football, which is amazing, given the Maradona was still the best player in the world at this point and was like three or four inches shorter than Joey Barton, so that's bullshit right there. Yeah, Yeah, fucking weird logic in sports. (laughs) Um, Barton said his rejection by clubs only made him more determined to succeed as a footballer and prove his detractors wrong. He made his first appearance for Manchester City's under-17s team in 1999, so he's moved to Manchester now, which is the next major city over from Liverpool. Um, his first reserve team appearance came at the end of the 2000 to 2001 season in his final year as a trainee. Uncertain about uh, Barton's future prospects, the club planned to release him, but reconsidered and gave him his first professional contract in the closed season. Over the next okay. two years, he made the transition from the under-19s to regular reserve football. He was promoted to the first team squad um, in the 2002 to 2003 season, so... Uh, he's come through the youth setup, which is for teams that have ambitions of playing in major European competitions in soccer. It's a massive blessing to have a talented young player that you have trained yourself. Because when you right. enter these competitions, you have to register a squad of 25 players. And a certain percentage, a certain number of that squad, I think it's four, have to be trained at the club between the ages of 17 and 21, and eight have to be English. So, or from the nation that your club is from. So, if you're from Holland, they have to be from eight, okay. eight Dutch players, sort of thing. Um, so, to have a talented young English player who is not only English but also trained at the club is super, super rare. And it's why English players over in this country are way more expensive than foreign players because they they have a number of advantages over kind of foreign counterparts for that very reason. Gotcha. Uh, Barton would make his debut for Manchester City in November 2002 against Middlesbrough 
uh, sorry, he would have made his debut had he not lost his shirt after leaving it on the substitutes bench at half time. So he was just fucking around. He was like, "Ah, it's time for half time. I'll just leave this here." I'm like, "Joe, are you going on?" He's like, "Um, I don't have my shirt." (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck are you doing, kid? Go and look for it. (laughs) So yeah, great start Uh, to your career there. He lost his shirt. He lost his fucking shirt. He eventually made his first team debut for the club against Bolton Wanderers on the 5th of April 2003. His first senior goal came two weeks later in a 2-0 win over Tottenham Hotspur on Good Friday. He ended the 2002-2003 season with a run of seven consecutive starts, which for like a 19-year-old kid is that's great, you know, good. Yeah. Good for you he's and establishing. Rolling. Yeah. He's uh he's getting there, you know, after impressing in his first season at City Barton was offered a new one-year contract uh, at the club by manager Kevin Keegan, who is like a legend in Liverpool and football in general, uh, which he signed in April 2003. He featured in the first team more regularly during the 2003-2004 season and following a second Premiership goal uh, was rewarded with a call-up to the England Under-21 squad for their 2004 European Championship qualifiers against Macedonia and Portugal. So Joey Barton, it should be noted, he was never really like a top-tier talent. Um, he was like, or he only ever got one full England cap and he came through in a generation where there were like legendary players like Frank Lampard and and Paul Scholes and Steven Gerrard who would get like 80 90 100 caps you know each and but he was like he was a very hard he was small so he was hard to get off the ball he was industrious and he had like a lot of stamina he was full of enthusiasm he always chased people down and fought for the ball and he was he had a really good engine really good drive so he was very useful if you needed someone in your team who's going to do the dirty work and the heavy lifting. So you can have all of these flary, creative foreigners and then this one little psychopath in the middle of the park. Soccer has goons like hockey. Basically, yeah, that's what he was. He was a goon. But in in soccer, (laughs) I know in hockey, goons are there to basically fuck people up, pretty much. That's that's their role. In soccer, what... uh, and And they're called enforcers, typically. So what enforcers are there to do is boss the midfield. So they close everyone down, they hassle them, they try and nick the ball off them, throw them off their game, they maybe come back and help out the defence, and then they move the ball forwards. That's not the kind of thing that like a Brazilian winger can do because they're smaller and they're not as big, muscular, or anything like that. They're usually quite quick and very skillful. But Joey Barton was small, but he was also like rough and tough and you know quite strong and physical, and that was his game. The point is, with an enforcer, they're not supposed to get sent off all the fucking time. Because <laughs> when you do that, you kind of, you miss that. Your teams miss their enforcer. If you build a team around a defensive midfielder who's super scrappy but not that cultured, when they disappear, the team falls apart. And this is where Joey Barton runs into a few problems. Um... An FA Cup game against uh, Tottenham saw Barton receive the first red card of his career in unusual circumstances. Uh, This is the first time he'll get it for unusual circumstances. And most of the time you'll be like, yeah, he definitely deserved a red card for the rest of the (laughs) stuff. Um, At half-time, with his club 3-0 down against Tottenham, he argued with the referee, swore at him a bunch, and was sent off, although the match was not in progress. He was sent off in the tunnel when the teams were going to the changing rooms at half-time. So the referee oh. was like, did you just call me a cunt? You, you red card. So, yeah, <laughs> that's basically what happened. Um, 
uh, in the second you half... You fired on your time off. Basically, yeah. <laughs> you, you're getting uh, reprimanded when you shouldn't be. Uh, despite playing with 10 men, Barton's teammates achieved an unlikely 4-3 victory. So Barton, uh, you know, despite he, despite the fact he got sent off, they had a massive comeback in the second half. So who knows if he'd stayed on the pitch, that may not have happened. That may not have, insp- you know, his sending off may have inspired them somewhat. Maybe, Maybe. fired them up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's the first signs of trouble there. Barton left uh, the city of Manchester Stadium in anger on the seventeenth of April after not being picked in the team for Southampton. However, despite this little tantrum he featured regularly in the 2003 and 2004 season while he compl- uh, which he completed with 39 appearances and one goal his displays impressed city supporters and at the end of the season he was awarded the club's young player of the year so his first full season was pretty good but there are some red flags starting to appear there uh, right and it's only going to get worse from there uh, Barton in the preseason for the 2004-2005 season sparked a 10-man brawl in a friendly match against Doncaster Rovers. Um, <laughs> after you get in a fight with your friends, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's just it's just a warm-up game. That's fine. And in the warm-up game, he decided to go in with a two-footed challenge on an opposition player and try and break his leg. So. Ooh. Yeah, that's violent. That's that's a way of warming <laughs> up. Yeah, I'm gonna break people's legs this year. I need to get started. Um, so, although he signed a new contract on the 22nd of September 2004, which would have kept him at City until 2007, the club considered sacking Barton in December 2004 after an incident at a Christmas party. And this is dark. Uh oh. First of all, football clubs. After what I'm reading here, should just not have Christmas parties because this is just fucking insane. <laughs> he stubbed out a lit cigar in youth player Jamie Tandy's eye after he oh. <laughs> after he had caught Tandy. This this is so fucking mad. After he had caught Tandy attempting to set fire to his shirt. What? So self defense. I'm going to <laughs> poke your eye out with this fucking cigar. What the hell? Um, yeah. Escalation. That is, yeah, that's fucking insane for a Christmas party. Um, He subsequently apologised for his actions and was fined six weeks' wages, which is £60,000, which he could probably have done with that money around about Christmas time. It's a a poor Christmas in the Barton household this year (laughs) because I put a cigar out in someone's fucking eye. Um, Ouch, man. Jamie Tandy was 17 at the time as well, so he fucked up a kid's life. Jamie Tandy never recovered from that. His career was done. Because his yeah, eyesight did, never recovered, so I was gonna ask if if he saw again. I mean, he he saw, but not enough for him to play high level football, and he was quite promising. So Joey Barton basically ended this guy's career before it even started. So dick move, first dick move. Um, in May two thousand and five, Barton broke a thirty five year old pedestrian's leg while driving his car through Liverpool city centre at two a.m. Uh, huh, I wonder what was going on there. Yeah, I wonder what he was doing out there. I'm sure he was just going for a nighttime drive to cool down to some lovely jazz music. Um, Maybe he thought it was a vicious attacking dog. <laughs> Did he back up over the pedestrian? Run over your leg, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Reversing back over it just to make sure it's broken. Um, oh. In the summer of 2005, Barton was sent home from a pre-season tournament in Thailand after assaulting a 15-year-old Everton supporter who had provoked Barton by verbally abusing him and kicking him in the shin. So This Barton, guy hates kids. This guy hates children. 
<laughs> so this guy went full Andrew Jackson on this guy. Like, you know Andrew Jackson when someone tried to kill him? He beat the shit out of this kid. He had to be restrained from attacking the boy further by teammate and club captain Richard uh, Richard Dunn. Richard Dunn is six foot five and like big. Like he was a central defender. He was all muscle, all vertical leap. He was all about, like, no finesse to him. He was just there to get rid of the ball. And he was, like, having trouble holding this five foot seven inch psychotic scouser from <laughs> kicking the shit out of a child. Um, Jeez. Kind of crazy. So Barton underwent anger management therapy, thank Christ, um, at the order of city manager Stuart Pierce and paid £120,000 in club fines. It's not going to be the last time he does that. Um, it's getting bigger. It's getting worse. In the autumn of 2005, Barton began a seven-day program of behavior management at the Sporting Chance Clinic, a charity set up to help troubled sportsmen and women, which is actually, they do really good work. Um, and despite what you're about to read, it has on occasion worked for Joey Barton, just not as well as it should have done. Uh, just a reminder as well, Joey Barton is 22 at this point, and he's already ruined someone's career slash life beating up a bunch of children run over someone in his car fucking up his teammates other players sparking 10-man brawls he's 22 jesus <laughs> it's a hell of a start it's a hell of a start barton handed in a written transfer request in january 2006 which the club rejected the following day they also rejected a verbal offer from barton uh from middlesbrough with Stuart pierce stating that a deal could still be made to keep him at the club uh, during the following week barton said that he had been a little impetuous in making such a request and agreed to begin negotiations on a new contract he was rewarded with a new four-year deal uh, which he signed on the 25th of July, ending speculation about his future. He was earning £80,000 a week. So, um, holy man. About $125,000 a week at that point. This is after all that shit. Um, <laughs> they're like, oh, you naughty boy. Here's a new contract. Um, well, they had to pay him more so he could afford the fines. Yeah, like, I can't keep on getting fined unless you raise my wages. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> Barton's behaviour appeared to improve after his partici uh, participation at the Sporting Chance Clinic. However, on... Uh, well, that's silly. Yes, that is silly, um, JJ and DP. Welcome. Um, however, on the 30th of September 2006, television cameras captured Barton exposing his arse to Everton fans following City's <laughs> injury time equaliser in a match at Goodison Park. 43,000 people. And he's like, oh, I wonder if I can get away with this. Just pulls his pants down. <laughs> There's cameras I, everywhere, you fucking idiot. Um, I, still, I give props for that because that's hilarious. Yeah. And <laughs> somewhat, it's another one of those things where it's like, it's somewhat justified, not like. This guy set fire to my shirt. I'm going to blind him with this cigar. Justified. Um, Barton had received abuse from Everton supporters throughout the match, and the gesture has since been described as light-hearted and inoffensive by people involved in football. People involved in football shouldn't be allowed to make judgments <laughs> like that because the Merseyside police looked into it because he exposed himself to kids, basically. Oh, I didn't think There's about children that. in the crowd. You can't show them your arse. Um, uh, they announced in October that they would not be taking any further action although Joey Barton was fined £2,000 for bringing the game into disrepute and, and warned about his future conduct by the FA so he was fined several minutes wages for that um, <laughs> uh, it, it's becoming another thing uh, another thing after another with him isn't it it's like it, the snowball is getting bigger 
at this point. Yeah, it's making soccer more interesting for me. (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, there are... Uh, I, I say, unfortunately, there are less Joey Bartons now than there used to be because of the money and the way the game has evolved since then. But there are still people out there who are fucking mad in this game. <laughs> we, we talked about Maradona, but Joey Barton so far is out insaning Diego Maradona, which is quite an achievement. A lot more violent, a lot less cocaine yeah. so far. Yeah, less cocaine, <laughs> more kicking uh, from Joey Barton. <laughs> In November 2006, it just keeps on going, Barton was involved in a a memorable goal celebration after scoring for Manchester City against Fulham. Striker Bernardo Carardi ran to the corner flag, followed by teammate Joey Barton. Carardi proceeded to remove the corner flag, just pulled it out of the ground like that, pretended that it was a sword, made Joey Barton get down on his knees and knighted him as if he was the king. So... uh, (laughs) Uh, the the thing is that is the closest Joey Barton is ever getting to a knighthood because could you imagine <laughs> if like he he gets a knighthood in the next few years and the ninety five year old queen is there like slowly very slowly knighting him because she's so old Barton's dad might uh, see that as like uh, an affront and just run her over with his van watch so, out now <laughs> watch out the queen's suddenly on guard for a white van driven by an insane scouser. Um, Barton's agent, Willie McKay, said in January 2007 that if any team offered at least £5.5 million for Barton, it would trigger a release cause in his contract that would mean City would have to allow Barton to talk to the interested club. This reportedly prompted Everton manager David Moyes, who just months earlier seen this guy's arse, um, (laughs) make an inquiry to City about Barton's availability. His dad mate's van, remember? Yeah, we remember the van, JJ, holy shit. Um, uh, and the next day Joey Barton said people are trying to unsettle me but I'm happy to stay here you might want to talk to your fucking agent about that apparently he didn't get the memo so <laughs> what the hell um, and here here we go with the really serious stuff Barton was arrested on suspicion of assault and criminal damage after an alleged argument with a taxi driver in Liverpool while going to his hotel after a match on the 13th of March 2007. He was cleared of the charge in May 2008. Took a fucking long time to clear that shit. A year to clear that? That should have been cut and dry. Especially at a hotel in 2007. There would have been CCTV cameras everywhere. Well, it seems pretty on brand, too. It does. It does. I can see why it maybe (laughs) took long. They're like, it's Joey Barton. We should really carefully consider this. Um, Barton displayed his outspokenness once again on the 22nd of April 2007 when he publicly criticised Manchester City's performances during the 2006-07 season and described some of the players at the club uh, that the club had signed as substandard. Following his comments, City manager Stuart Pearce banned him from speaking to the media. Uh, Barton was fined £100,000, so a week and a bit's worth of wages, and suspended by City until the end of the season. Following an incident during training when he assaulted his teammate, Usamar Dabo. Uh oh. Um, You can't beat your teammates up. Yeah, again, (laughs) although this guy was a full grown man, so Joey Barton is stepping up. Like, he's no longer just beating up kids and running over people in his car. Um, so there's that. Yeah, he's, he's kind of improving. Um, Dabo <laughs> said that he had um, been hit several times, was left unconscious, and had to go to hospital after suffering injuries to his head, including a suspected detached retina. Oh, man. Oh, Again hell. with the eye injuries. Yeah. Uh, Dabo <laughs> requests... And this is this is how serious it got. You know, usually, like, 
when you've got situations where things get physical between teammates or like colleagues sometimes it dies down and things are kind of brushed to one side and everybody kind of makes up that didn't happen this time Dabo requested that the police press charges against Barton and as a result Barton was arrested and questioned by Greater Manchester Police about the altercation. Uh, it effectively ended his time at Man City. He later cited a relationship breakdown with Stuart Pearce as the main reason he left the club. Or maybe it was because you were constantly assaulting your teammates and calling them shit. Maybe Could that's be. why. Yeah. Maybe that's that why. That might have something to do with it. Yeah. Uh, Barton was bailed until August and was later charged with assault, to which he initially pled not guilty. He later changed this to guilty, and on the 1st of July 2008 was sentenced to a four-month suspended prison sentence, plus 200 hours of community service, and ordered to pay £3,000 compensation and Dabo's court costs. So Dabo got a bit of extra pocket money, like three grand is nothing to these people. They're earning that That's every so day. Yeah. Oh yeah, hundred and twenty something a week. Yeah. Hundred and twenty grand a week. He can he can go around beating up half of his team if he, if he's only <laughs> going to give him three grand. Barton was also charged with violent conduct by the FA. Barton pleaded guilty and on the first of September two thousand eight was banned for six matches with a further six match ban suspended for two years and fined twenty five grand. Again, very little money. Following right. offers from Newcastle United and West Ham United. Barton joined Newcastle uh, on the 14th of June 2007 for a fee of £5.8 million, which is kind of a bargain for a young British player, but it's Joey fucking Barton, so yeah, you know that you're investment get. will pay off. Uh, he said that his desire to win trophies helped him make the decision along with his admiration for the manager Sam Allardyce uh, that admiration will not last long and he ain't winning shit at Newcastle anyone that knows anything about football knows that he's never going to win anything there Um, during his first Tyne-Weir derby for Newcastle against Sunderland Barton appeared to raise his foot dangerously in a challenge with Sunderland's Dixon Etuhu leading to the news of the world running with the headline ban him the FA were unable to charge Barton for the incident because match official Martin Atkinson had seen the act take place in the match and hadn't done anything about it. So, oh. FIFA regulations dictate that a retrospective charge for violent conduct can be made only if the match official did not notice the incident. Barton later, uh, later apologised for the challenge, so he knew he'd fucked up and gotten away with it, basically. In early December, he called for Newcastle fans to give the team more time after their abuse of manager Sam Allardyce. They were they were failing miserably at this point, calling them vicious. He later played this down, saying that his comments had been misrepresented. I mean, you said vicious. I don't really know how that could be misrepresented, to be honest. Maybe he was talking about Sid. Yes, he's talking about the bassist. He's like, God, those Newcastle fans, they're so angry. Also, have you guys heard of this Sid Vicious guy? He was a good bassist. (laughs) No, he definitely... That had to be what it was. Yeah, of course. Um, On the 27th of December 2007, Barton was arrested on suspicion of assault in Church Street, the Church Street area of Liverpool City Centre, following an incident which took place at 5.30am. What the fuck is he doing then? Go to bed, man. (laughs) <laughs> Rise up at five, and like, he's either going to early morning mass or he's been out on the booze too long um, oh yeah <laughs> he was remanded in custody on the 28th of December Merry Christmas to that family since the offence was committed whilst he was on bail for two prior offences the presiding magistrate said 
I also have to consider the safety of the public. You lashed out indiscriminately. So basically they're saying this man who's earning 125 grand a week is a danger to society. Yeah, because he can just pay off the ass weapons he lays out. Apparently so. Um, (laughs) CCTV showed Barton punching a man 20 times, causing him to lose lose consciousness and attacking a teenager. He's back on brand again. Breaking some of the teenager's teeth. Um, Jesus Christ. Maybe he should have went after a career in MMA. He really should. Like, I mean, (laughs) his size, with his violence, he could have done quite well. He would have been like Conor McGregor, only with a terrible Scouse accent. Um, On the 20th of May 2008, he was sentenced to six months in jail after pleading guilty for his part in the December 2007 assault. Barton's cousin, Nadine Wilson, and his brother, Andrew Barton, also pleaded guilty to their part in the assaults and received suspended sentences. So it was just a group of Bartons running around the city they... just beating people up. Damn! Yeah. I didn't know they were doing it as a group. His dad behind them in the van <laughs> going, you fucking got them. You fucking got them. <laughs> as a teenager, you can take him. Uh, <laughs> Barton, uh, here's a cigarette. Yeah, here's a cigar. Go for the eyes. Yeah. Barton admitted to being an alcoholic. Um, oh, I shouldn't have laughed at that. I'm sorry. And claimed he wanted to achieve total abstinence in order to improve his behaviour. He served 74 days of his prison sentence uh, before being released on the 28th of July 2008. And this is where I get to a really interesting part. Um, there were rumours going around at the time. I remember this specifically. that Because he was in HMP Liverpool. Um, so the city jail in Liverpool, which is notoriously, it's a fucking horrible prison. Like there are cockroaches oh. and rats everywhere. It's falling apart. It's a Victorian hellhole. It's disgusting. Yeah, he was uh-huh. paying two massive inmates fifty pound a day each to be his bodyguards while he was in prison, because he's a tough guy on the pitch. But when he's in prison with legitimate killers, he needs to hire a security team because seems fair. Like I, I think people would gang up and try to extort him anyway. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and actually that was probably a very smart move because, you know, like you say, extortion, but also, like, he's going to get hassled all fucking day. Oh, yeah. For, and people will try and steal his shit. And, yeah, so £50 a day or £100 a day, I guess, because it would have been for two of them. That's, I mean, he can easily afford that because he's still, he's still under contract at this point <laughs> to Newcastle. He's still getting paid a hundred grand a week by Newcastle or whatever it was. Barton's subsequent conviction... A four-month suspended sentence for the earlier assault on Usamar Dabo at Manchester City was handed out while serving his sentence. So he, he served them concurrent, so they were served at the same time sort of thing instead okay. of consecutively, which would have been a bit kind of intense. Um, he returned to playing action on the 30th of August 2008, six days, uh, sorry, six days before his FA hearing as a second-half substitute during Newcastle's 3-0 defeat to Arsenal. He came on to a chorus of boos from the Arsenal supporters. I'm not fucking surprised. Um, shortly, uh, shortly into his return match, Barton was involved in an incident with Sami Nasri, putting in a strong tackle which the referee did not give a foul for. What the fuck are they doing? The tackle, though hard, was legal. Minutes later, later, Nasri deliberately clipped Joey Barton while tracking back, which uh, he got a booking for. At the end of the match, Newcastle manager Kevin Keegan was involved in an altercation with Samir Nasri and Arsenal captain William Gallas in regards to the incident. This guy is like the one true ring. Everywhere he goes, people get angry and start fighting with each other. 
It's just right. This just yeah. inspires violence everywhere. We should some, find some hobbits to carry him around <laughs> safely. I mean, he's about <laughs> the right size. So <laughs> it was a brief stint back in the playing squad uh, with Joey Barton uh, banned for six matches with a firm, uh, further suspended six-match ban for his assault on Dabo. After serving his ban, he played 75 minutes in a reserve match and said he wanted to transform his image to become a role model. Fuck off. That's going to be a tough one. That's not going to happen. Really, is it? <laughs> Let's not kid ourselves. Um, he returned to action in the Tyneweir Derby, uh, Newcastle Sunderland, on uh, the 25th of October. He was booed by Sunderland fans and had missiles thrown at him as he warmed up as Newcastle oh. lost 2-1. They were throwing shit at him. <laughs> that's, he was not. That's a, not, not a good start to yeah, the game. That's not good. That's not good. <laughs> in fairness to him, though, he did like sort of shrug it off. Like They were throwing bottles of... like. Uh, well, just sports drinks from the crowd and like narrowly missing him and stuff, and he was just like calm. So it looks like some of the anger management stuff worked because the old Joey Barton would have been in the crowd trying to punch as many teenagers as possible, basically. Yeah. So, so he's evolving. <laughs> he's he's found his zen, man. Um, <laughs> uh, he returned to action. Yeah, I've mentioned that part. Without him, Newcastle had not recorded a league victory since the second match of the season, but Barton scored a penalty in his second match back to lift the club out of the relegation zone. So he is having a positive impact on the team because of basically his rep. He's a psychopath, so he like has a massive influence on the games because no one wants to tackle him. Um <laughs> Yeah, kind of crazy. The suspended six-match ban was nearly brought into action when Barton appeared to flick Aston Villa striker Gabby Agbon Lahore on the nose in the club's next match, (laughs) but the FA decided not to punish him. He booped him. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) However, further allegations... Oh, this is where it gets a bit serious. Uh, Further allegations that Barton had made a racist remark to Agbon Lahore were cause enough for the FA to reconsider the decision... The remarks remain unfounded, and professional lip readers claim he said nothing racist. Hmm. Well, if he did, that's mean. You should have just flicked him in the nose yeah, and let it keep be. it to a booping. If you're going to do anything, boop you, boop the nose, and then move on, and actually make the sound go <laughs> boop, and then you're fine. In his <laughs> you imagine Joey Barton. In his first appearance in over three months, on the third of May two thousand and nine, Barton was sent off again. Late in a 3-0 loss to Liverpool at Anfield for a sliding challenge on Zabi Alonso. The red card ruled Barton out of Newcastle's remaining three matches of the season with the club in danger of relegation from the Premier League. Newcastle manager Alan uh, Alan Shearer, who's a legend in in British football, raised doubts about Barton's future at the club, saying to the media, I think it would be wrong to discuss his future now. I'm not very happy. On the fifth of ah. May, fifth uh, of May, Newcastle announced the suspension of Barton indefinitely, and Barton was told to stay away from the club. As a result, Barton's future at Newcastle United was put in doubt. The club suspension was widely reported to have resulted not directly from the red card, but from a dressing room confrontation with Alan Shearer and assistant manager Ian Dowie following the match. Shearer said he made a mistake putting Barton back in the team and that his tackle was a coward's tackle, to which Barton replied that he was the best player at the club and Shearer had to play him. Shearer uh, disagreed and said that Barton was not and that he was actually shit. He actually used the word shit. Barton Uh (laughs) replied... 
Barton replied <laughs> that Shearer was a shit manager with shit tactics. And when Ian Dowie intervened to stop them from basically beating the shit out of each other, Barton pushed him over and called him a prick. Uh, Barton <laughs> was immediately transfer listed. This fucking guy. Uh, wow. <laughs> it's fucking amazing. But he tried to be nice. He tried, well, sort of. <laughs> For a second. <laughs> For Joey Barton, he tried to be nice. Uh, Barton <laughs> courted controversy once again uh, Newcastle after Newcastle's uh, 3-1 win over Liverpool on the 11th of December 2010 when he appeared to direct homophobic remarks and a lewd gesture towards Fernando Torres, who was Liverpool's striker at the time. Barton scored two penalties against Arsenal on the 5th of February 2011 as Newcastle came from 4-0 down to draw 4-4. He was involved in an altercation with Abu Dhabi, which led to a straight card from Dhabi. Dhabi took offence to Barton's strong challenge and retaliated by grabbing Barton by the neck and shoving him to the ground. He basically chokeslammed him. Um, oh, that'll... Damn. That'll fucking do it. Uh, <laughs> on the 26th of August 2011, Barton moved to Queen's Park Rangers. Like, his career starts like here, and then it's like here, and now it's like here, and it's going to keep on going. Not good. He'll be playing for a rec league soon. Yeah. Um, he signed a four year <laughs> contract after a free transfer at Newcastle released him. They were sick of his shit at this point. They were just like, fuck off. We'll pay you. Because uh, when people get released in soccer, the club has to pay half of their remaining contract. So let's say he's on 100 grand a year and he's got three years left on his contract. He's getting millions of pounds for that. And they were oh, just nice. like, we will eat that to get rid of this guy because he is just trouble. you got to be a hell of a bad dude for them to go, you know what? You're not worth millions of dollars. We'll yeah. pay to make you go we away. We will swallow the loss. And our shareholders will be pissed, but at least you won't be here. Um, on the, uh, he moved to Queen's Park Rangers, signing a four-year contract on a free transfer. He was handed the captain's armband by manager Neil Warnock on his debut with the club, which was a nil-nil draw for, against former club Liverpool. This guy was made captain after all of this shit by, by his new club. that guy high? Uh, Neil Warnock is a notorious lunatic, so yeah, possibly. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, on the 17th of September, he scored his first goal for QPR during a 3-0 win against Wolverhampton Wanderers. Following his goal, Barton was involved in a physical confrontation with Wolves player Carl Henry. Henry and Barton had a previous uh, physical confrontation in August 2010 when Barton was still at Newcastle. Barton accused Henry of trying to hurt people, which is a bit fucking cheeky. Coming from a guy yeah. who's put cigars out in teenagers' eyes and shit. Um, it's like, hey, Pot, have you met Kettle? Yeah, exactly. And uh, Carl Henry's response <laughs> was that Joey Barton was embarrassing. At this point, he is. <laughs> He's, you're embarrassing yourself, mate. Go home. You're fucking sloppy. What's the matter with you? Um, on the 2nd of January 2012, Barton scored the opening goal in QPR's match against Norwich City, his second for the club. He was later given a straight red card in the match for headbutting Norwich midfielder Bradley Johnson. Um, I thought he was a ball. <laughs> he looked round and he had a funny American <laughs> accent, so I thought I was in a film, so I just headbutted him. Um, with QPR <laughs> down to 10 men, they went on to lose the match 2-0, uh, 2-1. He bec he's become a liability at this point. Like He will score but get sent off and fucking lose you yeah. the match. It's crazy. On the 13th of May, on the final day of the season, with QPR requiring at least a draw in their match against Manchester City or for Bolton Wanderers to not win in order to guarantee uh, Premier League safety, 
Barton was sent off in the 55th minute for violent misconduct, and this is just fucking insane, even for him, after elbowing Carlos Tevez, Manchester City striker, in the face. Immediately after being shown the red card, he kicked Sergio Aguero in the back of the knee, another Manchester City striker, and attempted to headbutt Vincent Kompany, who's at least a foot taller than him. So that's going to be quite a challenge. <laughs> he just went batshit, started hopping and kicking and swinging. He went into rampage mode. He's like, well, I've been red carded. I'm going to take him out with me. Uh, Barton had to be dragged from the pitch by former teammate Micah Richards as he rowed with Manchester City players and staff and attempted to square off with striker Mario Balotelli. He just, he's not happy until he's hit everyone on the pitch. QPR went on <laughs> to concede two late goals and lose the match 3-2 but amazingly avoided relegation due to Bolton's draw at Stoke. So he did everything he could to get his team relegated, and they still survived in spite of Joey Barton's insanity. Barton commented after the match, saying that he was trying to take one of their players with me. What What are you... Are you trying to drag them to hell? What the fuck is wrong with you? So he's admitted that going, he was deliberately... You're all to coming with yeah, me. If I'm going off, I'm going to fucking injure one of you. The FA responded by issuing two charges of violent conduct uh, against him, and I, I'd have stayed in the dressing room. Yeah, JJ, I think anyone would have. Uh, violent conduct for the kick and attempted headbutt. The initial foul already carried a charge of violent conduct. Barton accepted the charge of kicking Sergio Aguero, but denied the charge of attempting to headbutt Vincent Company. In his defence, it would seem a bit insane for a five foot seven inch man to try and jump up and headbutt a six foot five inch. But you'd have yeah, to, you'd, yeah. Just imagine him bringing out like a little step stool. Yeah, wait there. QPR <laughs> <laughs> also began an internal investigation into his behaviour amid speculation that he would be stripped of the captaincy, fined, and possibly either sold, released on a free transfer, or have his contract terminated for gross misconduct, which that never happens. That's happened in the Premier League. That's probably happened like four or five times in 20 years and there's like there's 20 cl- 20 game cl- clubs in the league each year and you know so for him to be faced with that it's really really serious um he was punished uh, by the FA on all three counts of violent conduct was handed a 12 match ban and fined 75,000 pounds by the FA however QPR announced the results of their internal investigation. Barton was stripped of the captaincy and fined six weeks' wages, believed to have been around five hundred thousand pounds. That'll that you'll feel that yeah, one. Yeah, you will. <laughs> oh, it's another lean Christmas in the Barton household this year, but at least he's not in prison. Uh, Barton was also removed from the club's pre-season tour of Asia and in a statement the club said that they had also uh, reached an agreement with Barton that if he seriously breaches the club's disciplinary procedures again the club reserves the right to terminate his contract. Barton responded by saying my behaviour is wrong and I accept the punishment that has been imposed upon me as a result. Now that's good (laughs) that he's finally accepted responsibility but if if you think about the stuff he's done on the pitch and off the pitch, if any other person, anyone other than a professional athlete, had done half of the things this guy had done, they would be looking at years, decades in prison. Oh, point. yeah. If it was at a bar and not uh, on the field at a professional sporting event, yep. yeah, you're you're going down. Absolutely, yeah. And he's already been to prison at this point, so kind of crazy. Um 
Barton completed a season loan move to Marseille to get him away from QPR, I assume. In September, the LFP confirmed that Barton's 12-match ban would follow him to France. Lovely. And uh, restrict Barton to UEFA uh, league games, which are European games against other teams that aren't in France. Uh, Barton told ESPN that he would not return to QPR after his loan spell was completed and also said that he only joined the club for the money because his partner was expecting a child. Dick move. <laughs> Honest, okay. but dick move. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Um, on the th- the sixth of May two thousand thirteen, Barton was giving given a further two match suspended ban for dis- uh, describing Thiago Silva of Paris Saint Germain as uh, as looking like an overweight lady boy on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking. Oh, I'm sorry. That is terrible. <laughs> Laurent Devanas, the president of the French Football Association uh, Federation's National Council of Ethics. Fuck me, that's a mouthful said that Barton was punished only for making inappropriate remarks and escaped a more severe punishment because his lawyers proved his lack of homophobic intent by showing the committee Barton's appearance in the BBC Three documentary on homophobia in football. Hmm. Really? Hmm. He got out of... He couldn't have meant it. He was in this documentary yeah, he where did he did a thing a while ago where he was it. like saying bad things is wrong. And then he said a bad, bad thing. But it's not wrong because he didn't mean it in that wrong way. He was just being an arsehole because it's Joey Barton. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, arsehole Joey Barton. Right, yeah, too much bad. Um, uh, Barton returned to QPR, despite saying he wouldn't, uh, for the 2013-14 season. During a match in Burnley in October, a plastic bottle thrown from the stands hit Barton on the head. Amazingly, he kept his uh-oh. calm and just shrugged it off, even though he was bleeding. Oh. So... Oh. Yeah, you have to get so he just up. doesn't care about bottles. Yeah, it seems oh, like there it. you go. You know, at least it's not a van. Um, he was sent <laughs> off in QPR's one-nil home defeat to Leicester in December 2013, receiving two yellow cards in quick succession for fouling and then throwing the ball in descent at Gary Taylor Fletcher's face. So, <laughs> so he fouled him, picked up the ball, and threw it at his face. Wow, this guy's fucking fouled him and then threw a tantrum. He's so funny, (laughs) Uh, and we shouldn't be laughing because this is terrible. But Jesus Christ, man! Um, On the February twenty first, two thousand fifteen, Joey Barton received the ninth red card of his career in the thirty second minute of a match against Hull City after swinging at Tom Hiddleston's uh, Tom Hiddleston Tom Huddleston. Sorry, different person, not Loki. Uh, After swimming at Tom (laughs) Huddleston's groin following a foul by Darnell Furlong. So someone fouled him, and he decided to swing for someone else's, someone else's cock and balls. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? Uh, makes sense. Yeah, like, why not? You know, someone's fouled me, I'm frustrated, I'll just reach out and try and hit this man in the, the dick. Uh, Chris there Ramsey suggested that Barton <laughs> would miss the club's next three matches as a result um, and would return to anger management therapy following the incident. In uh, May 2015, Queen's Park Rangers announced the release of Barton in the summer. They've finally gotten rid of him. (laughs) And here, this is like the end of Joey Barton's playing career, so we'll just go through it quite quickly. Uh, Burnley, on the 27th of August 2015, Barton joined Championship Team Burnley, so he slid down further again. On a one-year contract, he was named the Championship PFA Team of the Year. So he, he performed well and kept his nose clean. And as a result of that impressive season, people were like, maybe now, at the age of uh, 33, 
Joey Barton's over his shit. Maybe he's calmed down. Maybe we can get a good few years out of him before he has to retire. So Rangers up in Scotland signed him to a two-year contract. In September 2016, Barton was suspended by Rangers for three weeks following a training ground argument with Andy Halliday that turned physical. On Just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> I was reformed. No, I'm not. On the 10th of November 2016, Barton had his contract terminated with uh, Rangers with immediate effect. Basically, the clubs are not having any of his shit at this point. On the 2nd of January 2017, despite the threat of an FA ban, Barton rejoined Burnley, making his second debut for the club in a goalless draw with Sunderland in the FA Cup third round. On the 26th of April, Barton was banned from football for 18 months after admitting a charge, uh, a football association charge, in relation to betting. Barton was released by Burnley on the 23rd of May 2017. Uh, on the 27th of July 2017, Barton had his ban reduced by almost five months on appeal. And that's his playing career done. So they're like, you're 34, you've just been banned for admitting betting. So he's an, he's an alcoholic and he's got a problem with betting. So there's, again, like, a lot of these issues I'm sure will be traced back to his childhood. But, like, there's addiction I issues. I feel like I can relate to him a little bit. <laughs> Like the, I guess, like you could quite, you could say that the violence is probably linked to the addiction as well, because if someone gets a rush from the the violence and the the confrontational aspect of it, then that's an addiction in itself. So, oh yeah, can be t- for sure. He definitely should have been an MMA fighter, to be honest. <laughs> um, now let's move to his managerial career, which is so much fun. It's very short, though. Uh, League One club Fleetwood Town, not Fleetwood Mac, announced in 2018 in April that Barton would take over as manager on the 2nd of June after the expiration of his ban. He retired from his playing career upon taking over. On the 13th of April 2019, following a 4-2 away defeat to Barnsley, South Yorkshire Police launched an investigation after Barton allegedly assaulted opposition manager Daniel Standall in the tunnel. At the end of the game. <laughs> now he's not on the field, he's in management, and he's fighting other managers. He's just going to punch anyone go. he can, doesn't matter what he's doing. <laughs> um, on Ju- In July 2019, Barton was charged with causing actual bodily harm and bailed until the 9th of October 2019. He pleaded not guilty. Two days later, he won the Manager of the Month award. What the fuck? Man. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he was holding them like by the shirt collar when they were voting, yeah. and he's like, "Who's the manager <laughs> of the month?" Give me that that award. <laughs> I can't. I I don't understand football. Sometimes this guy has literally just been bailed, and you're like, "Yeah, but he's won a few games." So come on. Um, on the um, the sixth of November, 2019, Barton appeared at Sheffield Crown Court, pleading not guilty to a charge of assaulting. Uh, occasioning actual bodily harm. A provisional trial date was set uh, for the 1st of June 2020. On the 4th of January 2021, the club announced that Barton had left the club with immediate effect. He left the club when it was uh, 10th in League One, so he'd done a decent job as a manager there. He then went on to, a month later, join Bristol Rovers, who were rock bottom of the league pyramid like this. So there's, in English football, there's so many fucking leagues. So the top one is the Premier League, <laughs> and then below that you've got the Championship, and then League One, and then League Two. So those, there's four leagues 
and you, know, you get promoted okay. or relegated from the various levels. When you get relegated from League Two, you go into the non-league system, which is like eleven or twelve or fifteen leagues deep. Like it goes right down there. And they were they were about to lose their professional status and leave and go to semi-professional Uh-oh. basically. Um, and he takes over at boss at the, as boss at this point. Uh, the club were in a Risky. relegation battle, sitting just two points outside of the relegation zone. Barton was unable to reverse his side slip down the table, and on the 24th of April, they were officially uh, officially relegated following a defeat at Portsmouth that saw the club sitting bottom of the league, nine points off safety with just two matches remaining. Relegation had all but uh, all had been all but confirmed in the previous match, with Barton coming out in the press to again publicly criticise his own players as well as the two managers before him saying his team were going down with a whimper. In October oh, 2021, Barton was criticised when he compared his team's poor performance in a 3-1 defeat to Newport County to the Holocaust. <laughs> oh. it's, okay, it's, yeah, that's the same. Yeah, that's we lost today. It's like half of our nation was wiped out. No... No. In a post-match interview, Barton had said, someone gets in for a game, does well, then has a holocaust, a nightmare, an absolute disaster. Barton apologised for his comments the following week. Fuck. I feel like he might not have known what that meant. Maybe he didn't. And the funny thing is is that a lot of people, like, he's tried to kind of revitalise his image. I mean, he had to, really. Um, And say that, oh, I've calmed down now. I read philosophy. I eat sushi, and it's like what that that doesn't mean that you know what the Holocaust. How is he? No, he's not. He's not reformed. <laughs> he still says stupid shit. Now we're going to get to yeah. something really dark, and I I don't want to make too much fun of this because this is really really sad. Um, his personal life section of Wikipedia includes Joey Barton's brother Michael Barton was sentenced to life imprisonment with a tariff, a minimum sentence of 17 years for his involvement in the racially motivated murder of Anthony Walker in 2005. Joey made a public appeal to his brother to come forward and help uh, with the police investigation after Michael went on the run following the attack and also made a series of calls to Michael inquiring about his involvement in the incident. So, again, like, we we knew that his brother had been involved in the kind of the random street attacks on people that him and his, like, other cousin had as well. So, like, there seems to be something going on in this family. Because he describes his, his upbringing as like, oh, it was harsh but fair. It's like, I don't think we've had the full picture of this because there are problems. I feel, feel like they might have been... In with the little hooligans there yeah. and running some... I mean, it, it would make sense, I guess, yeah. from that area and in that time. And also, like, his brother has been involved in a racially motivated murder. And do you remember the guy, the player, who said that he'd suffered racist abuse at Joey Barton's hands and Joey Barton oh, had supposed, yeah. it's supposedly not been homophobic when he made those homophobic remarks. And it's like, a lot of stuff you're like, hmm, okay, maybe yeah. not. Um... <laughs> and of course the next bit is back to the comedy 
Barton is a prominent user of Twitter, because of course he fucking is, um, with over <laughs> 3 million followers, commenting on figures from Friedrich Nietzsche and George Orwell to Isambard Kingdom Brunel and Morrissey. His eclectic tweets have resulted in him being described by the BBC as a philosophical sportsman to rival Eric Cantona in his heyday. He definitely fucking isn't. Uh, <laughs> I can say that Man. with no reservations. Um, well, we should we should Twitter invite him to yeah, talk to Yeah, we should have done. Oh my God, he could have been on the podcast. <laughs> that would have been awesome. Uh, Joey, so tell me about your love of cigars. Um, in July oh. 2021, Barton was charged with the assault by beating of a woman at an address in Kew in London in June 2021. This is still ongoing. I don't know who this is, but it was inside this this person's address. So there's a potential for uh, it to be domestic-based. Sounds like it might yeah. be. Yeah. And I'm going to... So that's a lot to cover, and I've been talking for a long time, so I'm just going to leave this, summing up Joey Barton perfectly by this quote that he gave The Guardian when he was in the process of, I eat sushi, I read Nietzsche, I'm reformed. <laughs> Um, so I'm a man of culture. I'm not a psychopath. Um, I bought some books. I bought some books. Look at me reading them. That's upside down, Joey. Uh, <laughs> no, his quote was, where I'm from, if you said something to someone in the pub, they'd smash a glass over your head or stab you or shoot you or you'd get beaten up, which is kind of an interesting, like, wouldn't you start by getting beaten up and then shot? I don't know. Anyway, that's it Joey depends Bond. on what you said. Yeah. That's Joey Barton's quote about his life and growing up in Merseyside in the 1980s. That's a lot. And I've been putting yeah. off this guy for a while because I knew that um, what kind of other podcasts have covered him before about how crazy his life was. Uh, it was around about the time he released his biography, so it was a few years ago now. But, um, you know, there was also stuff was developing with this court case involving the woman in Kew Gardens, and I, I didn't know whether we were going to get a a judgment or whether he was going to go back to prison for a second time or what. But, I mean, I know that in America you guys have had some, like, kind of really controversial uh, sports figures in recent years, like Aaron Hernandez and, and oh, Michael yeah. Vick and people like that. And Right. Well, I mean, there's even one going on with my Minnesota Vikings right now with Dalvin Cook being involved in uh, possible domestic Ooh. abuse. And then there's a whole... Dark yeah. mixture of uh, ESPN reported it as he was a victim of domestic abuse and extortion. Right. Because she's yeah. coming forward to sue him for beating him up at one point in time. But it's it's a mess yeah, right it now. it sounds like it. And that stuff happens a lot. Like yeah. Like Ray Lewis and all of them, too. It's kind of, uh, yeah, I, I'm putting it into mm. perspective, you know, you, you will get... Because there, there are footballers over here, like I, I haven't talked about Ryan Giggs. I may do in future. He's got a lot of shit going on. In his life, and we have a bunch of footballers. Like Paul Gascoigne let alcohol destroy his career. We've talked about Maradona and his cocaine addiction, which basically derailed his entire life and career and stuff. But what do you make of the insane, angry life of Joey Barton? Um, here's my my issue with going too high yeah, course, on yeah. him is because coming from uh, a background where I lived in some rough neighborhoods sure, um, yeah. and didn't have much money. Mm -hmm. And I I can relate to his, you know, where I come yeah. from. If you say the wrong fucking thing, you you could be in some trouble. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've evolved and changed for real. I still don't eat sushi. <laughs> um, 
<clears throat> so overrated. I I can see where he's coming from. Yeah. Uh, I've got a little bit of you know compassion for sure. yeah. the score on that. And I, I do as However, well. I, I, I kind of, you know, Liverpool in the 80s was rough as fuck. And, you know, it sounds like, I mean, to to be exposed to his father essentially murdering a dog at three, it's like... Yeah, that'll stick with you. That'll that will, stick and with that you will influence bit. you growing up. Yeah. I like that he fought as a manager. I mean, not like, but... <laughs> like, <laughs> he is passionate to the end. So, yeah. yeah. So... He's super violent. So the cigar violent. to the eyeball and the beating the hell out of children yeah. thing, and now women um, put him higher in the points for me because I don't think it's cool to beat women and children. No, it's not. Um, <clears throat> just in general. <laughs> so I, th- I think because it doesn't seem like it, his brother might have been involved in murder. Yeah. But well, he was. He didn't <laughs> see. Okay. Yeah, his brother. His brother I, is in uh, in prison. In prison for yeah, in prison. it. Okay. Yeah, he was convicted. So his brother was involved in the in that, yeah. and he didn't necessarily have anything to do with it. And no. he hasn't really killed anybody. No, no, he, he actually, and like he said, like his his um because he went to live with his dad, his grandmother kind of helped keep him away from that. And I feel like maybe that may not have been the case for his other relatives and stuff. So because of maybe. that, like obviously there's still elements of his personality that are really messed up, but he's not getting involved in gang activity and racially motivated murder so there right. is that but still violent as hell Fucking and hell at yes. any minute it could escalate out of control because that's what happens with that exactly shit. um so i'm i'm gonna go all the way with like a like an 86 okay. seems fair i think so because of the continued violence mm. and because the delusional thinking he's yeah. gotten better but still violent i know and like i, I didn't cover i mean i had to pick and choose because there was other stuff in there that i could have gone he he's made a lot of very kind of strange statements over the years like he he held a press conference and at one point he was talking about the fact that he wasn't getting included in the england squad despite the fact like england had a glut it was a golden era for english talent in midfield at that point in time so you had david beckham you had steven gerrard you had paul Scholes, you had frank lampard you had loads of other like generational like if they'd come up if you'd had one 10 years and then another one 10 years later you'd be like oh it's like an ongoing dynasty of great midfielders they all came around at the same time so there was no way he was getting in that team ever right because like as good as he was a good player and he was influential for these like kind of mid-table lower table teams but he was not um, like a genius he was not a footballing genius like these other players were and they were amazing players so um he held a press conference and he was like i'm twice the fucking player that steven gerrard is i'm twice the fucking player of frank lampard and what the fuck are they doing in the english i should be fucking there and it's like joey you're not that good mate you're constantly getting sent off you're always putting fucking violence in the table why would they put you in the english setup? you're representing an entire country Nobody wants Maybe that. Maybe he thought that's how you're supposed to play soccer. <laughs> you're supposed to run people over with your fucking van. Um, no, Joey, <laughs> you're not. Uh, so, yeah, um, I, I would... I, he's not found that good Jesus. No, Joey Barton has not found that good Jesus, JJ. He definitely hasn't. Um, so that's... I, I would, I'm glad... Uh, I'd happily take uh, an 86 for Joey Barton. I kind of was expecting a lower score because, like... You know, it's like it's not mass murder, like you were saying, or anything. But like the level of the violence 
over a, a, an entire career, which really... If he'd done it any it's other... pretty pro- consistent, too. Yeah. Like, could you imagine if the, you, were, you were violent in your day job? And obviously, like, say you're working in an office and you put a cigar out deliberately in someone's eye. Like, that's that's your career done. You know, you're never getting hired in that field so. again. But this guy is, like, rewarded with an £80,000 a week contract and then he signs for Newcastle on a hundred grand a week. And it's like, they they made him a millionaire while not helping him. So, it, well, maybe he can help himself I, now. I bloody if hope still so. Any of that I left. really hope, and this is the thing: we're not, we don't wish bad things on people. I really do hope he finds peace, because you know, you talked about like your upbringing and stuff. I can remember in my life when I was out of control in my twenties and stuff, and there comes a point when you have to stop doing that. And I really do yeah. hope that Joey Barton finds peace. I don't know when he's going to find it, but I really hope he gets to have a few years where he's like, man, I just want to sit in this lawn chair, like, you know, listen to the birds tweet and just relax in the sun and not fuck, not put my glass out in someone's face. You know, just... Somebody just needs to hand that guy one of them Dutch cigarettes. Yeah, just Joey Barton needs to find <laughs> weed. Never mind Jesus. Um, so yeah, that's the story of Joey Barton in a in a sport such as soccer, which has seen some pretty psychotic people over the years. He is up there, and uh, General Custer, one of the most notorious people in history, and one of the most weirdly venerated psychopaths in history as well. Yeah, uh, and that's our show for this week. I had a lot of fun researching Joey Barton. I always knew I was going to cover him, but I kept putting him off because I was, I discovered like VJ Malia and all of these like really interesting people. But I knew I was going to do Joey Barton, and I knew people who weren't familiar with him were going to be like, "How the fuck is he still doing this?" So yeah, that's that's the continued ability to just keep going. Yeah, yeah. anybody else would have been in prison absolutely for a long, <clears throat> long time. So I had a lot of fun. Did uh, did you enjoy hearing the story of Joey Barton, despite how disturbing it was? Uh, I did. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I might start watching some more soccer. You get a couple of guys. Like yeah, you. I think um, <laughs> well, instead of watching football matches, because that can like if you're not familiar with it, man, it is an adjustment. Maybe just go onto YouTube and Google Joey Barton violence or Joey Barton highlights and watch him be completely insane for 10 minutes on YouTube or something. So that that's one good way of going. There we go. Yeah, and then follow <laughs> up, they'll probably follow up with Vinnie Jones because he was a psychopath as well before he became an actor. So, yeah. Wow. yeah oh, yeah, Vinnie Jones was an absolute psychopath. Um, he seems like Yeah, it. he does and, and is. <laughs> um, so that's that's our show for this episode. This is episode 21. We're, we're almost at the end of season one. We're four episodes away from the, the season finale where there will be twists and a shock reveal and will Pam and Jim get together? Who knows? Um, that was an office reference, sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm like, wait, am I Pam or are you Jim? <laughs> oh, wait. We're already together forever, uh. buddy. Um, so, yeah, thank you, everybody, for joining us. And just remember that um, if you are feeling like your success in your career means that you can go ahead and wipe out an entire race of people, or if you have had a successful start to your athletic career and you think that gives you the right to just go around and destroy physically anyone you want maybe reconsider get some help and don't make those mistakes so um, 
Until next time, Derek, would you like to say goodbye, please? Bye, everybody. Thank you so much it's for joining been fun. us. It's been so much fun. <laughs> and we will see you again. Take care now. Bye. <laughs>